Good morning. This is Dave Kanicki, editor and publisher of Ag Equipment Intelligence. Welcome to our latest podcast, Stuck in Neutral, the Federal Reserve Bank's Outlook for Agriculture. Today's podcast is sponsored by Farmer's Edge. If this is your first time joining us, I would encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series currently available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. If you have another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make every effort to include it. Subscribing will allow you to get alerts when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Today we're joined by Nathan Kaufman, Vice President and Omaha Bank Executive with the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Nate is also the Kansas City Fed's principal expert in agricultural economics. He's the leading voice on the agricultural economy throughout the seven states of the 10th Federal District and the broader Federal Reserve System. Nate also oversees several bank and Federal Reserve efforts to track agricultural, economic, and financial conditions, and he hosts the Kansas City Fed's annual agricultural symposium. In today's podcast, he focuses on the key reasons that the ag economy is stuck in neutral while the overall U.S. economy is currently operating in high gear. And he provides us an outlook for the short and long-term future. Before I get started, I'll just note a little bit, just kind of level set for everybody, why this is a topic that the Federal Reserve may look at to begin with. Many of you may know that the structure of the Fed is to have regional reserve banks spread across the country with the goal of trying to incorporate views from all areas of the economy into national discussions on monetary policy. Uh, The Kansas City Fed being our home office, we cover seven states in the middle of the country. And as may not be a surprise to anyone on the line, that is uh, largely an agricultural region uh, with a lot of with a lot of connections to agriculture, whether that's through banking or whether it's through industry and manufacturing. And so this is a topic that the Kansas City Fed has devoted time on uh, for, for a long period of time. And this is an area of focus, as Dave mentioned, for me in particular out of our Omaha branch office. I've chosen to title the presentation that the U.S. ag economy is stuck in neutral and to add a little bit to this, also facing an uphill climb. And I'll give a little bit of specifics as to why I've chosen that particular title. But again, it's probably not too much of a surprise to people that the ag economy has been in a little bit of a slump the last few years. Um, So we'll provide some data on that as well. So turning to the next slide here, just to give a little bit of a roadmap of some of today's uh, main points. Um, I think it's important to recognize first and foremost where we sit in terms of the broader economy. And here I would say that despite what we've seen the last several weeks in terms of financial market volatility, I would say that there's been a pretty strong momentum in the national economy. Uh, In contrast, ag has remained in what I would characterize as a prolonged downturn. I'll go through a couple of specific sections in talking about that downturn. Um, but need to recognize when we look first at agricultural credit conditions, I would say that conditions there have have deteriorated. It's been gradual, but it's been fairly persistent. Uh, Farmland markets, though, have been a bright spot, and so I'll I'll describe that a little bit and, and the significance of that as well as we go through the presentation. Earlier this year, I would have said that agriculture looked like it was stabilizing a bit. 
Um, we were starting to see uh, farm income, though it was still declining a, a bit. It was it was starting to stabilize and maybe even look a little bit more promising. As we've had some intensifying trade disputes, though, it seems like there's been a little bit more pessimism that has crept into the, the outlook. And so I will spend some time talking about how trade is connected to some of those concerns. And then lastly, I'll spend some time talking about interest rates as as we've seen some uh, changes in terms of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy stance that has led to some changes in terms of interest rates on farm loans. And so we'll provide a little bit of context for that. As I go through the presentation here this morning, um, there'll be a couple of specific themes that you'll hear me come back to. Um, this notion of the downturn being gradual and prolonged is something that I think that you'll hear um, several different times. And ultimately what's leading to that environment is um, an elevated supply of agricultural commodities that's been weighing on prices. I've focused on some of the major commodities for this morning's presentation, but uh, it's really across the spectrum of, of agricultural markets where in general, the level of supply is weighing on prices. Uh, what that's leading to is what I would then characterize as a gradual but persistent deterioration in farm finances. And so you'll hear, you'll hear some of those themes. Um, I'll come back to a couple of specific items that I think are going to be important to monitor going forward. One is relatively positive at this point, and one is a little bit more negative. Uh, the positive is farmland values, and that's been something that has been holding up, I would say, the ag economy and in particular the, the farm sector balance sheets for, for a couple of years. That maybe wasn't expected several years ago if, if we were to have thought that, that the farm economy would be at this point. And then the negative is, is trade. And I will come back to that in terms of the risk that that, that portends for the sector. So turning to this first slide, um, again, starting kind of at a high level with the national economy and how it connects to agriculture. I do think it's important to recognize that the general economy has actually strengthened the last five years at a time when the ag economy has been softening. What this slide shows is two charts in two separate time periods. The chart on your left is showing a period from 2007 to 2013. The light blue bars are agriculture. The dark blue bars you may think of as being sort of general or macroeconomic in nature. As you can see in the chart on the left, farm income rose from 2007 to 2013, upwards of 80%. Corn prices uh, around that same point as well. If I were to show other commodities here and not focus on corn or to show soybeans or other prices, you would see something quite similar that in general, the ag economy was doing very well during that time. And, and you can see in contrast, the general economy was, was struggling a bit. This is, this is through the years of the recession in 08, 09. Uh, and in, in the years that followed the recession, the recovery was actually pretty sluggish. And you can see that it, as of 2013, consumer sentiment was still down from where it had been in 2007. The Fed, of course, had recognized the sluggishness in the economy and was reducing interest rates to a point uh, very close to zero, trying to stimulate the recovery. If you fast forward, though, and look at 2013 as a little bit of a turning point, you can see that the bars essentially flipped. Uh, so farm income since 2013 is off by about 50 percent. Corn prices between 50 to 60 percent since 2013. Again, this would look similar if I was showing other commodities. But in contrast, you can see the general economy has been has been actually gaining steam. Um, consumer sentiment has picked up since 2013. If I were to show other indicators of the national economy, uh, be it home prices or GDP growth or personal income, a number of those would also also show something that has become more positive since 2013 than it had been in the years prior. And alongside that, then the Fed sort of recognizing these broad based gains in the economy has begun to normalized monetary policy since the end of 2015, 
um, and that's leading to a little bit higher interest rates kind of across the board, but also playing out in the farm sector. So moving to the next slide, farm income has remained less than half of its recent peak. This is just, just to give a little bit of high level context for agriculture in, in particular. 2013 was the recent peak year for farm income. And you can see that there was a fairly dramatic drop from 2013 up until about 2016. Uh, and it's been roughly flat since 2016. 2018 really um, anticipated to be something similar to what it had been uh, for the last couple of years. The primary driver of reductions in farm income from 2017 to 2018 is the fact that expenses really have not changed a lot. We've actually seen a little bit of a pickup in expenses across the board. You can see in this chart which category of expenses have been has been contributing to the majority of, of, of expenses in the agricultural sector, and that's coming from feed and livestock purchases, other intermediate expenses, and manufacturing. I would draw your attention to the third from the, the right, interest expenses. As a percentage change from the previous year, uh, interest expenses are the largest of these, of these that are shown, but they still constitute a relatively small amount overall. So even though interest rates are rising, uh, they're still relatively low and it's not a large amount in, in terms of the total. The other driver though, aside from the expenses, and this is what a lot, of, a lot of lenders are focused on, obviously a lot of producers that can very well tell you what the price for December 2019 corn might be, is the fact that commodity prices have really been pretty flat the last couple of years. Uh, what I'm showing in this chart is an index for crop prices and livestock prices for the U.S. overall. And this is meant to be an index that captures a broad range of commodities. So it's not just the major commodities, but also pulling in some of the other specialty crops and, and others that you might not necessarily see throughout the Corn Belt. And the story is pretty similar regardless of, again, which commodity we're looking at. And that is that prices have been pretty flat on the crop side. You can see that this goes back to about 2015, shown in the dark blue line back to about 2014 for the livestock sector is, is when we saw the recent peak in terms of prices, but, but we've really been seeing something that's maybe a little bit more optimistic than the crop side right now, but also pretty flat the last couple of years. The other thing that I'm showing on this chart though is simply an inflation adjusted measure of both crop prices and livestock prices. We sometimes get used to thinking about commodity prices in nominal terms, meaning that we talk about corn prices being in dollars per bushel or cattle prices being in dollars per hundredweight. But what is sometimes missed there is the reality that the prices of everything else that farmers need to purchase is changing. And so if we adjust those prices to think about them in inflation adjusted terms, you can see that it's even a little bit more pessimistic. So it's just simply recognizing that the price of other goods that farmers buy is changing as it is for everybody else and $4 per bushel of corn does not buy the same kinds of things today as what it might have even in 2010. So moving into some of the specifics as to what's driving this environment of changes in the ag economy, it's important to recognize that demand for agricultural products has actually remained pretty strong, even despite some of the trade concerns. What this chart shows in the bars is that exports in terms of agricultural exports to the world and to China actually have remained relatively strong and, and are expected to remain strong in 2018, uh, even to the point where they're expected to be the second highest going back to 2014. Now, certainly exports to China are off a little bit, and I will come back to this later on uh, because that will be extremely important, I think, right now for where we sit in November at a time when exports typically pick up to China. 
At the same time, biofuel production, and in particular ethanol, has been rising pretty steadily. It's important to note on this chart that the production of biofuel of ethanol is strong, but the growth is not the same as what it had been in the years, say, from 2005 to 2010. So we're still producing at a high level. Demand is very strong, but the growth that we had seen a decade ago uh, is just not the same kind of growth that we see uh, today. So alongside this, this elevated demand, but maybe more limited growth, what's been weighing on prices really has been the nature of supply. And, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the presentation. Um, just to illustrate this on the crop side, I'm showing you uh, corn and soybean yields as a deviation from trend for the past five years. Uh, this is incorporating the October forecast. But you can see that the general story for the past five years has been that we've been producing across the country a lot of additional crops beyond what might have been expected if you were just taking a trend line average over the past couple of decades. Uh, so you can see there are a couple of years that stand out in particular, 2016 and 2018, uh, where both corn and soybeans were well above trend. Uh, those maybe had backed off a little bit in yesterday's report, but still generally are expected to be above trend. So it's this level of production alongside more limited demand growth that has been persistently weighing on prices in, in agriculture. To provide a little bit more context to this and information, again, to reiterate this notion that production is weighing on prices, and really what it comes back to is that we, we have a, a, a large amount of inventories of crops across the world, not just in the U.S., uh, that's weighing on, on prices in a, in a global sense. The chart on the left shows crop inventories in the U.S. as a stocks-to-use ratio, and so you can best think of this as incorporating elements of both supply and demand. And so when these numbers are high, it means that we have a lot of supply relative to the amount that's needed on a daily basis. And you can see in particular that soybean inventories in 2018 rose pretty dramatically, and this will be important as I come back to the portion on China. But more than just the U.S., you can see that stocks have been elevated for both soybeans and wheat. Corn was down a little bit globally in, in 2018, but, but by and large, stocks are still relatively high. If I was giving this uh, presentation and focusing more on livestock markets, it would be a similar story that you would, you would see uh, elevated production and supply, even though demand is pretty strong, uh, that it's been the supply side that's been weighing on prices. Moving into to the next slide to show a little bit about what this has meant in terms of producer profit opportunities, it's important here just to kind of set the stage for farm finances to recognize that, that profits have been limited and cash flow has been pretty tight and maybe even negative for some producers. The chart on the left shows profit margins for corn and on the right shows for soybeans. And so the way to read this chart is the bars on each of these are showing you average production costs for producers on average for the United States. So there's going to be a, some variation around this, but this is to give a sense of the average picture. The blue box that you see above the bars shows the average price range during the course of a calendar year. And so wherever there may be points that the box is higher than the bars, those represent profit opportunities or selling opportunities. And you can see in 2013 for corn, 2013 and 14 for soybeans, there were a lot of opportunities to sell for pretty significant profits. Those have, have largely deteriorated, and, and in this case of corn, it's been very fleeting in terms of profit opportunities. Now, for those producers who were maybe very astute in terms of marketing and selling forward, there have been some opportunities in the second quarter around planting or maybe just before uh, the summer portion of the growing season uh, where profits 
where those opportunities picked up. But by and large, it's been pretty limited. The orange dot that you see is reflecting in at, at the current average price for those commodities. And so you can see it's just barely above break-even cost, which means that you have some producers that are still facing losses and some producers that are maybe just getting by with, with profits just above break-even. On the livestock side, it has been a little bit better than what it was in 2015 and 16, but even there you can see that, that the opportunity for profit has been pretty small. Um, on the cattle side, you can see that the current price is right around break-even. 2017 was, was, actually, was actually an improvement from where we were in 2016. And then there have been some opportunities for profit in 2018 uh, to the point where it's better than the crop side, but again, not something that would have resembled, say, 2014 as one of the strongest years in recent memory. On the hog side, you can see that things there have been a little bit more positive. Demand overall for pork products the last several years has been strong, and the industry has been in expansion mode. But you can see that, that with some of the volatility there, uh, prices are back to the point where they're just sort of hovering around break-even again. So the, all of that is to set the stage and describe the current conditions in the ag economy before moving into some of the things that we are focused on a little bit more at the Federal Reserve because of the exposure of the banking industry to agriculture um, throughout this region, but also because credit is an important part of, of what goes into the viability of a farming operation, both in one calendar year, but then also across years. So I'll spend the next few slides here talking about what we see and playing out in the way of farm finances. The first thing to recognize is what you typically expect in any cycle is that when profits are limited or maybe cash flow is, is negative, that it means that more producers need more financing. There are producers who maybe previously did not need financing that now need it, and those producers who already needed the financing need more of it. And that's been happening during the course of this five-year downturn in agriculture. So even though income has been declining since 2013, farm debt has been rising. And so what you see in the red line is a ratio of farm debt to farm income. You can think of this best as a measure of liquidity. And so from, say, 1990 to 2013, this measure really had been pretty stable. It hadn't changed a whole lot. Uh, income was maybe flat during some of those years, but debt was also rising at about the same pace. And so there wasn't much of a pickup. The concern in terms of finances, though, recognizing the prolonged nature of the downturn is that since 2013, liquidity has been deteriorating pretty steadily. And you can see you'd have to go back to the 1980s on this chart to see a measure of debt to income that would have resembled where we are today. In contrast, the blue line shows something that there's still some caution flags, but it's, it's a little bit more optimistic. So whereas liquidity has been deteriorating, measures of solvency really have remained pretty strong. So when we think about farm debt as a percentage of total farm assets, it has been rising since 2012 or 13, but at a pretty modest pace. And you can see it's well below that blue line where we would have been in the 1980s. So again, even though debt's rising, debt to asset ratios, which is an important measure of solvency, has been rising only more modestly. And what this comes back to, again, is that debt is not rising because it is. It ultimately comes back to the denominator in this equation, which is, which is farm assets. And so to give some information on that, and this is where, where I will interject one of the bright spots of agriculture in the current downturn, is a recognition that farmland values have remained pretty strong. There have been some declines in some parts of the country. There have been maybe stronger declines in areas that are highly rural, 
Um, those areas that are in more proximity to urban areas have seen more stable demand. And those areas that would be considered the highest quality farmland have also been more stable. I'm showing though on this chart land values again for each state and across the country as a change from 2000 to 2013 and then the change from 2013 to 2018. And I'm showing these two separate time periods because it's important to recognize just how far land values had risen during these really good years in agriculture and then how modest the decline has been since 2013. And this goes back to the support of farm finances and what it means for lenders to be working with their borrowers. So what you can see on this map, for example, if you look at the states of Iowa and Nebraska, in the heart of the Corn Belt, you can see that land values had risen, and this is USDA data, so it's, national, it's state averages. Uh, you can see that, that land values in those states had, had risen upwards of 300%, um, so very substantial gains in land values. And in contrast, if you look at the map on the right-hand side, there are some states that have shown declines. Nebraska is showing a 7% decline. Iowa is roughly flat. Uh, other states throughout the Corn Belt maybe just up slightly. Again, depending on what region you're looking at, I would say that that values are probably off a little bit more than this. It's maybe 20% in some areas. Again, those areas that are highly rural or maybe there have been some production concerns, um, it's off a little bit more. Um, but whether it's flat or down 20%, it certainly has not declined 300%. Uh, and so it's important to recognize that, that land values have been a, a strong contributor to the stability of the agricultural economy alongside the declines in income. So what this has meant then in terms of land values remaining strong is that even though delinquency rates on farm loans have been picking up, they've also only been picking up at a very modest pace and are not even to the point where we would have been in 2009 and 2010 coming out of, a re out of the recession. Uh, this chart shows delinquency rates on farm operating loans for a number of the major lending institutions in agriculture. Um, the blue line shows the, the rate of delinquency for commercial banks, and you can see that that has been picking up steadily since 2015. Uh, that it's a similar number, it's a similar qualitative change for the other lending institutions here, but again, pretty minor. More of a pickup in terms of the kinds of delinquencies that you're seeing on FSA loans and guaranteed loans through commercial banks, but that's largely to be expected as those loans are reflecting credit being extended to, to what would be categorized as more marginal borrowers. So what is important to recognize though is the trend here, and, and, and I'll keep coming back to this nature of the downturn being prolonged and gradual because the pressure is still rising. Uh, the, in the latest quarter, we actually did see delinquency rates on farm real estate loans rising above uh, the rate of delinquencies on all other bank loans, and that's the first time that we've seen that in about the past 20 years. So it's still pretty small, but I think it's worth noting just because of the direction and that it has continued. To give a little bit more information on this in terms of what we see anecdotally in our region and, and based on some of the survey data that we collect, uh, this slide shows uh, the nature of repayment problems in our Kansas City Fed District. And again, what's important here is not so much the percentage of bankers who are responding that there are either major or severe repayment problems, but again, is the direction um, and sort of the consistent direction for the past five years. So we really had very few lenders describing any kind of severe problems in their farm loan portfolios back in 2011 and up through 2014. With the downturn in commodity prices though, and as, as expenses remained pretty sticky, uh, we saw repayment problems start to rise 
Uh, and that, again, has been a steady trend for the past five years that you can see in this chart. Uh, and in the last quarter that we had asked this question as a, uh, as a survey question for bankers in our district, at least 30% or so were saying that there were some amount of repayment problems in their farm loan portfolios. So that brings me to the next topic, again, just sort of recognizing where we've come from in terms of the ag economy and then what it's translated to in, in terms of farm finances. And I'll spend the next few minutes here talking specifically about trade. And I know this is a topic that has that many of you are likely tired of hearing about um, being in the news for, for really the past six months or so pretty heavily. Um, but it really has not gone away either. And I would also say that, uh, you know, some some of the news maybe even had, had been preempting some of the concerns and and now we're getting to a point where some of the challenges that we're seeing in trade are starting to have more real impacts and so I'll go through that. The first thing to recognize is just to give everybody some context as to what's been happening and I know that everybody's probably familiar with the earlier conversation on NAFTA. I won't spend a lot of time talking about NAFTA. Um, more recently the attention has shifted to China and, and that's where I'll spend the majority of my time talking about trade here this morning. It's important to recognize that the tariff environment between the U.S. and China has been across a range of commodities, even though soybeans has, has garnered most of the national media attention. What this chart shows is uh, what's described as most favored nation tariff rates between the U.S. and China. So the, the dot in, these chart, in this chart for each of the commodities that's shown would be the average tariff rate that was applied to products sent from the United States to China, uh, during the calendar year 2017. The, the range that you see, so the bars uh, for some of the commodities, would be the allowable range of tariffs that are, that's allowed as a most favored nation status under WTO rules from the United States to China. And, and then lastly is the blue dash. Those blue dashes show the retaliatory tariff that was announced by China for each of these commodities going from the U.S. to China. And again, what's important to recognize is that the tariff was raised uh, for a number of different commodities, although some of these commodities are going to be much more prominent in terms of U.S. exports to China. With that in mind, I'll focus specifically on soybeans because that's the elephant in the room in terms of trade with China. And what's important to recognize here is that soybean exports really were pretty strong during the first half of this year. We started to see the the, the issue of trade pickup around the April, May, June timeframe, um, and then it's, it's continued, it's maybe even um, intensified a little bit since then. But what's important to recognize is that the pace of exports up until just recently uh, really has been strong. Um, if you look at week 16 to 32, uh, this, is, this chart is showing the U.S. soybean exports to the world um, for 2017 and 2018 based on the calendar year. And it's, it's showing a three-week moving average and just to try to strip out some of the weekly noise. But what you can see is from those weeks from 16 to 32 uh, this year, exports really were pretty strong. Some of this may be due be to the, the short crop in South America and the U.S. picking up some of that market. Some of it might have been due to exports to China um, at, at some point, maybe not declining just on the anticipation of, of the tariff environment. Um, it could be a little bit of both, but it's important to note that ex exports were pretty strong the first half of the year. Unfortunately, the U.S. does not export a lot of soybeans during the middle part of the year. Uh, exports typically rise after harvest, and, and that's where we are now. And so what you can see that's more concerning is that typically exports pick up at the, in the middle of the third quarter through the end of the year, 
And you can see we're well off the pace of exports this year for soybeans um, relative to a year ago. And so that's going to be quite important for the formation of soybean prices going into the next planting season. To give a little bit of information as to why this is happening, and I'll convince you, the, I'll try to convince you the, the importance of China uh, where we stand right now, is to recognize in the second quarter of this year, export strength really was driven by most other countries other than China. Um, you can see in this chart that from 2017 to 2018, looking only at the second quarter, exports to China were off, but just slightly. Um, in contrast, and again, partly because of the short crop in South America, exports to all other regions of the world that, that are relatively significant for soybeans actually picked up pretty dramatically. And in fact, all exports to all of those other regions more than compensated for the decline to China. And you can see that in terms of million metric tons, exports were up 2.8 and down 0.3 to China. So on net, still pretty strong there. If you fast forward, though, and look at this in the fourth quarter, this is what is perhaps most striking. Uh, this data is through October 25th. There was a, a data release yesterday that makes this chart look even worse. And what this is showing is, is really that exports to China have, have largely ground to a halt of soybeans. Um, you can see that in 2017, we exported in this time frame um, almost 6 million metric tons, and, and, and we really have exported very little so far in the fourth quarter of this year. Uh, the important thing to recognize in contrast to the second quarter is that there, there may not be enough other markets to compensate for the decline in China if this environment continues. And so if we're off by, by this much in terms of exports to China, it will be a question as to whether uh, there are enough other markets to be able to make up that difference if, if it continues and if the trade disputes are not, are not resolved. The other thing that's been happening here at the same time as facing these export headwinds for soybeans is that we've also seen a rise in the value of the dollar. And so this affects buyers' decisions across the world and, and not just China when they're looking to source standardized commodities out of a particular region. There's definitely incentive to source those commodities out of a region where exchange rates are depreciating rather than appreciating. Since the beginning of 2018, as you can see on this chart, the dollar has increased in value by around six to eight percent, um, which sounds small, but it's pretty significant in terms of uh, adding to the headwinds that have already been there for standardized commodity markets. Uh, this had started to evolve in the middle of 2014 where the value of the dollar had been rising. Um, it stabilized a bit and even depreciated from January of 2017 to the end of the year. Uh, but we have we have seen that, that the value of the dollar start to rise again, which is a which is in addition to the the export headwinds because of the tariff environment, um, a notable change this year. So that's the the discussion on trade, and I'll end with a little bit of a focus on monetary policy and interest rates because that has been also a growing concern for some producers. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that delinquency rates have risen, but only marginally. Uh, debt-to-asset ratios are, ratios are still pretty strong, but we are in an environment where interest rates have been picking up. And so for those producers who are highly leveraged and for borrowers that have some of, for lenders who have some of those borrowers on their loan portfolios, uh, each, each lender can, can talk about some stories where uh, they've maybe had to turn down some loan applications just because of some of the changes in borrower finances over the past couple of years. And now with interest expenses also rising is, is a little bit more problematic. 
To give you all a little bit of context on what's changed in the interest rate environment, um, this may also not come as a surprise, but if you've been following news out of the Fed, going back to 2009, and I had alluded to this earlier, coming out of the recession, the Fed had pushed short-term interest rates, which is uh, the Fed funds rate is that primary uh, benchmark interest rate that the Fed has control over, pushed that rate to zero or very close to zero. And we had been at that rate for about seven years. Uh, the end of 2015, recognizing some of the gains that were being seen in the broader economy at that time, and I would say have continued since the end of 2015, uh, we've seen some normalization of monetary policy begin to take hold. And so we are uh, right now at a point where the Fed funds rate is, is between two and two and a quarter percent. And if you look at the red dot and the gray dot here at the end of the chart, this is showing the Federal Open Market Committee's projections of what would be an appropriate um, interest rate at the end of those years. And, and it's taking the median of the committee's projections for those years. So you can see in general, the committee still expects to, to have some increase, modest increases over the next couple of years uh, alongside a strengthening U.S. economy. This has led, as I noted, to some changes in farm interest rates. They've been pretty modest changes so far, but they have been changing. And so the chart on the left shows fixed interest rates for um, a number of different kinds of loans and showing for operating loans, machinery loans, and then also uh, farm real estate loans. And you can see that, that they've been up anywhere between 50 basis points to 100 basis points, depending on what category and what time frame we're looking at here. Um, but the general point being that interest rates have been rising for farm loans. Uh, again, interest expenses do not account for a large share of overall operating expenses for the farm sector, but at a time when the industry has already been in a prolonged downturn, it just it just adds a little bit more to the, the headwinds that had already been there. The chart on the right also shows that the size of operating loans has been rising, and this is something that we've been watching pretty carefully because what we've been seeing in terms of the of the lending environment for agriculture is that operating loans are accounting for a larger and larger share of expenses and debt for the farm sector. And this is important because it means that the the, the more that they're having to finance with operate finance operating loans means that those are not necessarily always investments in um, expanding the productive capabilities or, or efficiency of, of operations because they're having to spend more and more as a share of the total on, on operating. And what this chart also reflects as the size of operating loans is rising is that there have been some pressures for the industry to consolidate. So as producers are already say very efficient, maybe very large scale, those operators are taking on larger loans, maybe larger tracts of land um, and are positioned to be able to do so versus maybe the more marginal producers who have higher cost structures, maybe a little bit more debt uh, as a share of their total and are just not in the same kind of position to be able to expand. Despite all of these kinds of concerns, though, if you talk to agricultural lenders and if you ask them about interest rates or you ask them about trade um, and try to get a sense of what's driving either the growth or the barriers to growth in their lending area, which tends to be located in rural places throughout the, the middle of the country, most of them will all come back to commodity prices. Um, now, clearly, there's going to be a connection between uh, trade issues around trade and commodity prices, potentially even the value of the dollar and commodity prices. But at the end of the day, what the lenders are, are recognizing is that it really comes back to commodity prices and revenue. Um, I think that that's also an indication that 
changes in expenses don't happen quickly. And so to generate a more positive cash flow, it really, it really does come back to, to commodity prices. It comes back to maybe a solid and disciplined marketing strategy. It comes back to maybe being very careful in terms of expenses because commodity prices are at a point where there's not a lot of margin that that's had there. So this is just, a, this chart is just to illustrate qualitatively, not in terms of the overall number, but qualitatively lenders saying that it really does come back to commodity prices in terms of the, uh, the future for their, their lending territory in rural areas. So let me wrap up with a few concluding remarks. Um, I do think that it's important to recognize where we are uh, in terms of the national economy. The national economy has been pretty good. It's been driven largely by growth in metro areas, strong consumer spending, a services sector that has been pretty strong. One of the reasons that this is important is because it does provide options for farm families that are looking at pretty difficult conditions on the farm where a spouse may be able to find a job in town or maybe they can take on a job driving, driving truck or doing something else because there's demand for those jobs right now. Um, so a strong economy in some ways is helping uh, what is otherwise a pretty sluggish environment in agriculture, but it's important to recognize that, that the two areas are in different places. The agricultural sector has remained pretty weak. And again, earlier, earlier this year, I would have said that it looked as though conditions were stabilizing a bit. Um, yes, at that time, there was concern about NAFTA. Um, there still was probably some early mention of concerns about China as the steel and aluminum tariffs were beginning to, uh, to be mentioned a little bit more. But I would say more recently, it's turned a little bit more pessimistic just because these trade disputes have persisted for as long as they have. And then lastly, and, and I'm not sure that I can underscore this enough, um, the near-term test really for agriculture is now. Uh, the chart that I had shown on soybean exports to China, uh, it's no surprise that we typically do export our soybeans in the fourth quarter and into the first quarter, and China is by far the largest buyer of those soybeans. Um, if China is really does stay out of that market for U.S. soybeans for a prolonged period of time, it will be a, a significant headwind for soybean prices. It's likely to have implications for how producers think about planting next season. But if you are a producer in Iowa, you're probably going to produce corn or soybeans. And so your, your options are, are pretty limited. Um, around the periphery of the Corn Belt, there may be some opportunities to go into other commodities, maybe try to diversify an operation a little bit. Um, but overall, I think if that environment persists, it will continue to weigh on, on commodity prices because production still has been pretty high. Um, I didn't mention throughout this presentation the Farm Bill, and there's not a lot that I can say on that at this point other than it's just a source of uncertainty. Um, I think that most would expect that there would be some version of a Farm Bill, whether it's a new, whether it's a new one or whether it's an extension of the current Farm Bill. Uh, but it is one of those aspects that's still sort of hanging out there in terms of adding to the uncertainty in an already uncertain environment. Thanks, Nate. We're going to get started with the Q&A portion of the program. We've had several questions come in for Nate, starting off with, is there anything outside of commodity prices that can stimulate the industry? Well, so what's the driver of the of the boom that we saw, say, 10 or 15 years ago, really came from an increase in demand for agricultural products and for products connected to agriculture. So specifically, you saw the emergence of China and you saw 
demand for biofuels based on energy policy and legislation that pushed out the demand for, for agricultural products, primarily corn and, and soybeans and, and other products connected to those um, by way of, of, the, of animal protein and other things. So I think as long as you continue to see an increase in demand, that's going to be extremely important for supporting the agricultural sector, not just in the near term, but especially the long term. Um, I think that right now we've been in an environment where the global economy has been really pretty strong and that has supported demand for, for agricultural production. Um, the livestock sector has been, has been pretty good lately, and I think that's reflecting some of that demand. Um, of course, the concern is that over the longer term, if these trade disputes persist, there could be less demand for U.S. products because the price incentives uh, are such that it's maybe cheaper to source some of those products out of other regions. Um, so that, that, of course, has an implication. And then the other that I would say on the demand side is the, the longer term possibility for biofuels. The U.S. went through um, expansion of its biofuel industry um, a number of years ago and has gotten to the point where it's operating at a pretty high level. But there are a number of other countries that still could potentially look at biofuels as one part of a larger suite of uh, things that may be used to remedy what they recognize as some environmental concerns in their respective regions. So there are some sources of demand, um, but the, the reality is that, that supply and production has, has outweighed that demand growth in recent years. And it's it's been weighing on prices, so that's the environment we're in right now. You mentioned biofuels, and one of our attendees did ask, do you see E15 improving the growth for corn ethanol? And if so, any thoughts on by how much? Um, I don't have any specific numbers to offer at this point, and part of the reason for that is it, it could be it, it could take some time for some of the changes that are um, that are at least being pursued at this point to really take hold. It, it could take some time for for stations for fueling stations to adapt um, and change to something that is that is e fifteen. It's not immediately clear what the the consumer adoption might look like in various regions of the country. Um, that said, I, I do think that moving from E10 to E15 would provide certainly a boost. Um, I don't have an, an amount to give, but in general, I think that, uh, you know, the corn crop, about a, about a third of the U.S. corn crop goes into um, production of, of biofuels. And so going from E10 to E15 would be, would be at least a, a, a certain amount of increase in demand for corn. Um, I don't think, though, I would not be in the camp that thinks that it's, that it's something that would be enough to really move the needle uh, to sort of work through the amount of inventories that have already been building. Um, I think that it could relieve some of the pressure if it leads to an increase in, in commodity prices, but probably not enough to really change, uh, to be a game changer in the industry and go back to something that, that pr provides much more long-term viability. Another attendee asked if you had any data on cotton. I didn't talk about cotton, but I would note that cotton has been a bright spot this year as well. Um, so for producers in, uh, that are in that area, uh, you know, coming off of several pretty tough years in cotton, um, 2018 and maybe even 2017 were, were more positive in, in the cotton industry. Um, I think that's largely just reflecting supply and demand conditions there. Uh, demand, again, has been pretty strong. Um, there have maybe been some production issues along the way in other cotton-producing countries that have, that have 
resulted in a stronger increase in prices here in the U.S. for cotton. So that's one of the commodities that, that actually has been a bright spot. The other that I didn't talk about specifically is, is the poultry sector. Um, if you're in a part of the country that uh, the poultry industry is, is prominent, um, so specifically here thinking about the south and the southeast, uh, for those areas that are that are concentrated in cotton and poultry, um, this year actually looks a little bit better maybe than, than some others. It's really been in the heart of the Corn Belt where there's concentration in corn and soybeans specifically, um, and partly because of trade, uh, that 2018 has been a little bit more problematic. What things need to happen to get China back into buying U.S. commodities with trade policy? Well, that is a tough question to answer, and there's probably there's probably some political elements to that question that are well beyond my pay grade. Um, but I think that uh, you know I, I think that the market is there. There's certainly demand from China, and China is recognizing and has recognized for a long time that it it cannot be self-sufficient in providing uh, all of its own food, and so it has tried to it has tried to move as much as it can to being. Um, to, to establishing growth in the livestock sector and especially where there's not a lot of land that's required. And because of the growing conditions in China, it's largely able to produce what it needs for corn, but it has not, has not gone down that road for soybeans. And so China is going to need to import soybeans from somewhere. Um, I think the challenge is the longer that these trade disputes persist, it, it gives that much more of an incentive for producers in Brazil and Argentina um, assuming that they can get their economic concerns under control as well, to be able to take on some of that market share. Um, so I think that even though we've seen a lot of concern about trade this year, uh, my caution would be that these sorts of these sorts of developments in trade typically take a very long time to play out. Trading relations, unfortunately, don't necessarily change on a dime. And so to position the U.S. agricultural sector for long-term growth I think is something that that takes years to play out. Uh, And if these implications with trade sort of persist the way that we've seen them, uh, it's possible that some of these things, we may not not see the effects of some of the current developments until 10 or 15 years from now. So I I don't have any easy answers for for that question uh, other than to recognize sort of where we are and that there are a lot of politics that underlie these, even, you know, maybe even especially for things that fall well outside of agriculture. Um, unfortunately, it's just been in, in ag markets where we've seen um, more of the, the, the implications. Yeah, relative to that, you mentioned that the longer it goes, the more difficult it is going to be to get that market back. What if all the tariff disputes ended next week? How long would it take the U.S. to get back what they were doing previously before the tariffs? I think that's a good question. And, and my first response to that is going to be to recognize how agricultural producers in the United States who lived through the 1980s have responded. Um, those, what we often hear from bankers and producers and other farm groups is that those producers who remember the 1980s, they went through such a difficult time that they have largely prepared themselves for an environment maybe that we're sort of approaching now, not to the scale of the 1980s, but the reduction in income is, is still you know, similar to what we might have seen in the 80s. Uh, they're, they're prepared for that, for that environment maybe better than some others that had been through the 80s. And the reason I mentioned that is because there's a lot that goes into the psychology of these kinds of things. I think if you were to talk to farm groups um, in the Dakotas and recognizing how poor basis is and has been on soybeans there, it could take a lot to get producers just psychologically to the position that they're wanting to be able to produce soybeans. Uh, 
And at the same time, you know, even if these trade disputes are resolved, it doesn't necessarily change the, the possibility that that trade disputes could pop up in the future. And so all of a sudden you've sort of raised this question of whether or not, you know, trading relations become more problematic again. And if that's the case, uh, and you're a, you're a country that's looking to reliably source agricultural products from a key trading partner, you might not want to put all the eggs in that basket. You might want to recognize that having a diversified portfolio of, of suppliers is preferable. Again, you're, even though the trade disputes, if, if they do or don't get resolved, I think that's still the question that you've raised in the minds of some foreign buyers uh, that we've raised there that, that maybe aren't, aren't, aren't undone quickly. And that's why I say I think trading relations can take a while to, to really develop. Any insights on Canada's ag industry? I probably don't have as much to offer there other than to recognize that the pressures that Canada has been facing in terms of its of farm income and commodities really is pretty similar. Um, I think one thing to recognize might be that wheat markets are a lot better today than they were two years ago. Uh, if I were to have mentioned the commodities that I thought were Facing most significant problems two years ago, I would have said probably cattle and, and wheat. Um, and I think that at least with the changes that we've seen in corn and soybeans, uh, a lot of producers had pulled out of wheat. And so wheat prices are actually a little bit better. And so that matters, I think, significantly for, for producers in Saskatchewan and, and other places where you, where you do have a, a more concentrated wheat industry. Um, I think by and large, though, again, the, the situation around commodities is global, and, and that is to say that supply of, of agricultural commodities has been weighing on, on really all markets. Uh, dairy is another one where, uh, you, you know, if you're looking at Ontario or other places in Canada that have a, a pretty sizable dairy industry, those that have been in the, in the business of producing fluid milk those prices have been poor and well below break-even cost. And so there are some serious questions related to dairy now. So those, those particular commodities, I would say, are worth noting with respect to Canada. Um, but again, overall, I think that, that largely facing the same kinds of pressure that we're looking at in the United States. You got ahead of our next question was, uh, what are your thoughts on the dairy sector? Yeah, so the, the dairy sector would be the one that I would, if you ask me the question this year of which one is, is, is facing the most difficulties, it's going to be dairy. Uh, and the reason is because prices have been for a number of consecutive years below the cost of production, uh, especially for smaller producers that uh, they don't have the scale to be able to operate on thin margins. Uh, those large operations that are maybe operating on, on very significant scale have a little bit more in the way of, of opportunities there. Uh, and so especially in the production of fluid milk, I think that's an area where there's been a lot of concern. Um, there, there have been a lot, there's been a lot of pressure growing the last year to consolidate in that industry just because of the, the issues around scale. Um, I think the one positive thing that I might say, though, about the, the dairy industry is that I think some of this is due to, to changes in, in preferences for food. We know that that, produce, that consumers are, are drinking less milk, fluid milk, and that's been happening for a long time. But they're not necessarily consuming less dairy products. They're just shifting more to things like yogurt and cheese and other value-added sorts of, of dairy products. I think that presents some opportunities for operations that maybe can diversify out of fluid milk production. Um, they've gotten very efficient at producing fluid milk, but if there are some opportunities to diversify into 
into other more value added components of dairy. I think that does represent some opportunity, uh, but it, but it is an industry that's been facing some significant challenges and, and they've been growing the last year. Considering our audience's next question was bound to come up. Do you see capital ag expenditures such as major equipment decreasing into 2019? I think there it's going to depend on the region and the commodity to a significant extent. And so if you are in the heart of, of the corn belt and you're looking at the kinds of issues that I just, just described for corn and soybeans and, and maybe not real sure about what the outlook is for soybean prices, and then you know that everybody wants to shift from soybeans into corn and so next year corn prices might be down, um, I don't know that in that area you're going to necessarily see a, a pickup in, in spending on machinery just reflecting the, the weakness in, in profit margins. Um, going back to the, the cotton industry though, I mean, there are some industries and there are some regions where things look a little bit more positive. And so I think that you see maybe some potential for, the, for those kinds of areas, specialty crops in other parts of the country, the demand for those products is still pretty strong, notwithstanding the, the impact of a stronger dollar. And so I think that, that spending in, in some of those other areas outside of the Corn Belt maybe connected to the livestock sector where things have been a little bit better. I think you could see some spending there. Um, but I would say that my, my best guess is that it's, it's going to be pretty limited in, in areas connected to corn and soybeans just because of the outlook for those commodities. And, and those are pretty major commodities for sales of, of for equipment dealers and, and machinery dealers. I think you touched on this a little bit, but what do you see production costs doing over the next three to five years? Um, well, I was hoping you were going to say the next one year. Three to five years is a little harder to project in, in anything, uh, let alone production costs. Um, I think the first thing is to recognize there hasn't been much changed in the, last, in the last one to three years. I think that producers were hoping that there'd maybe be more reductions by now in the way of cash rents, and that really hasn't happened a lot, uh, maybe 5 to 10% down from where we had been a few years ago. Um, I think that that's probably a, a pretty good estimate for what to expect over the next say three to five years is uh, maybe still not a lot of change in, in cash rent. And, and part of the reason for that is because uh, producers have been able and willing to pay for it. They, they don't want to walk away from that land for fear that somebody else would be willing to pay it. Um, cash rent is a big part of, of the overall cost side of, of, of production. It's about anywhere between 25 and 35% of the cost of production. Um, and then if you look at other major categories like feed and seed, there really hasn't been much move there either. Um, I think that most producers are not wanting to sacrifice production. Uh, they know that they need to generate cash flow. And so most, most producers are trying to compensate for the low price environment by producing as much as they can, uh, which works for any individual producer in one year. But again, it's what's been contributing to the low price environment for a longer period of time. Um, so that would, I don't have any specific numbers to offer other than my best guess would be that that costs are still going to be pretty sticky over the next one to three years. There are some indications that India might become a higher importer of commodities. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so India would be one of those countries that would be a big question mark, kind of like China might have been 15 years ago, um, just because of the size of the population and recognizing where it is in terms of being a relatively underdeveloped country that that if it were to maybe go through some reforms and, and start to grow on the pace of, on the scale of what China did, that it could represent a very significant increase in demand for all kinds of products, but specifically agriculture. 
Um, I think that that's still possible, and India is, is probably not the only country. I think you could look at a country like Nigeria or Indonesia or other places that have a large population that could go through some kind of growth spurt. Uh, a lot of that comes back to the economic institutions that are within those countries. And so I think that India might be positioned for it, um, but it still has a ways to go in terms of, of liberalizing some of its, some of its economy, uh, of recognizing some of the disparity that exists between rural areas and urban areas in India. Um, in contrast to the U.S. and even in China at this point, um, much of India's population is, is still in rural areas where there are a lot of challenges to growth. Um, so long term, I do think that it's, it's something that could, be, that could be a significant prospect, but, but that's probably considerably longer term than what I think a lot of producers are hoping for at this point. We want to again thank Nathan Kaufman for taking the time to talk to us today and Farmers Edge for sponsoring this podcast. We look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at dknicky at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2414. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest ag equipment news impacting the industry by registering online for our free daily email updates and be sure to subscribe to our Ag Equipment Intelligence YouTube page. We invite you to check out our new website at www.agequipmentintelligence.com. On behalf of Nathan Kaufman, Farmer's Edge, and the staff of Ag Equipment Intelligence, Thanks for checking in with us today and make it a great week.